I have been searching. Welcome to Following the Fire. Thanks for joining us on this journey through the wilderness. Just like Israel followed the pillar of fire and smoke, we want to take a new look at our beliefs and just follow him. And like Israel, we get it wrong a lot, we get lost a lot, but we're doing our best to, to go where God leads us. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Don't you know it's all I have? But even on my heart Can't compare with what you're Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today we have an exciting guest on, at least I think it's exciting because I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff. But we were thinking, you know, it's one thing to pontificate about inerrancy and who wrote which books of the Bible and all that kind of stuff like we did the last couple episodes. It's another thing to get somebody on here who is an actual Bible scholar who really knows what they're doing and has translated ancient texts and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so we have Trevor Thompson on. I've known Trevor for a long time. Went to Bible college together back at Oklahoma Christian University. But he has taken this stuff to the next level. And uh, we're going to talk to Trevor today mostly about pseudepigraphic texts and what those mean and what that means for the Bible. So Trevor, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, my name is Trevor Thompson, and um, I'm a senior acquisitions editor at William B. Erdman's Publishing Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, where I live um, with my family. I'm primarily responsible for the New Testament books at Erdman's, um, books in the Greco-Roman world, um, as well as um, I do some trade titles, some more popular titles as well, and actually facilitate the audiobook program that comes out of Erdman's. Um, I grew up um, in western Oklahoma, in a small town called Clinton, where I was a red tornado. Nice. Um, did undergraduate work at Oklahoma Christian, and then a couple of master's degrees at Harding Graduate School of Theology, and another master's degree at the University of Chicago, and doctoral work at the University of Chicago. Yeah, I published in a variety of different areas for encyclopedias. Worked a lot on um, ancient authenticity criticism. I've done some work with the physician Galen. Actually had the chance to... Um, provide the first English translation of a text that had been miscatalogued and was discovered anew a couple of years ago. Really? By Galen? By Galen. It was called um, it, On Grief, or um, it's a fascinating little text. It's a, it's a letter reply to someone that describes a massive fire that swept through the heart of Rome and burned Galen's storehouses, which included medicinal books, pharmaceutical books, one-off medical instruments, things that he had made that were irreplaceable. And it's a wow. philosophical treatise about why he did not suffer from um, or die from depression. Wow. We, we knew about the work. We just thought it had been lost. And then it turned out it was um, in a monastery in Thessaloniki and had simply been overlooked by the cataloger. Wow. And so, yeah, rediscovered by chance and then got to work with translating that and yeah, have written on ancient medicine for the online Oxford Encyclopedia and yeah. Fun stuff. So you know lots of Greek stuff. <laughs> I do. Yeah, that's that's yeah. So I yeah. I actually I actually was in a, um at the University of Chicago. I was the instructor of Queen A Greek at the Divinity School, and then continued to teach Greek for a number of years um, when when I was um, on staff at Abilene Christian University before coming to work for the press at Erdman's. Yeah, I remember. Uh, so we we were at uh, OC in the Bible department roughly the same time, mm-hmm. and we were. 
And I remember you were like the go-to guy for anything Greek. <laughs> Even way back then. So you're, you're you're kind. So I look back on those days, and I I think I think I uh, I, I knew too little and thought I knew too much, and so that's you know it's 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 it's, it's, it's humbling. But um, yeah, but thank you. Yeah, well, it, it's good to have you on. the The past couple episodes, it, it's kind of not really planned this way, but the, our last couple episodes have been kind of around the edges of the issues of. Uh, Inerrancy of the Bible, infallibility of the Bible, and kind of the source ah. of things, the source of texts, where things came from, yeah. um, and kind of how all that wraps up together. And I'm, I'm remembered that your your Twitter handle is pseudepigraphos. Pseudepigraphos, yeah. Pseudepigraphos, yeah. yeah. I can't say it the right yeah. way. <laughs> I, I yeah, did the, pass the, Greek, the, but you know, it didn't do too well. You're, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, and so I thought, okay, I, I know that there are. At least, apparently, there are some pseudepigraphic texts in in the New Testament, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Or is it? I mean, I'm I'm guessing on words here. But so, if you could start out by telling us a little bit about um, what pseudepigrapha are, or pseudepig- uh, that word, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and, uh, yeah, and we'll yeah, no, go, go for yeah, that. no, I'm uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah, I, I can kind of sort of take a running start if you want to 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 kind of back up because the yeah start the, with you think the, would be best yeah so because the uh, pseudepigraphy I mean literally means um, falsely inscribed and okay. and so it's it, it's actually it's something that's that's falsely labeled and it, so let me give you let me give you a non biblical example so there's kind of nothing at stake for for anyone in terms okay. of this um, but going back to what I was saying about Galen. Um, Galen is a second-century physician and um, lives in Rome. He's the court physician for uh, Marcus Aurelius and was actually responsible uh, for part of Commodus's training. Um, we can blame him for the monster that Commodus became. No, we can't do that. Um, but but he, um, he, he goes to the bookseller's district of Rome, and someone is selling a book there, and it simply says, of Galen, or Galen's, we would say in mm-hmm. English. And th- th- this scholar says, let me see it. And he and he picks it up and and he starts reading the first couple of lines and he immediately says, "This isn't Galen," and he tears the top off, the part that said "of Galen," and then gives mm. it back to the guy who had purchased it, and basically said, "You got duped. You you bought a pseudepigraphon from a forger in the bookseller's district," and so the idea that you could write in somebody's somebody else's name for profit to discredit them. To get yourself a wider audience, there's a whole there a whole number of reasons, and and it it's a it's a huge phenomenon that has you know it's not necessarily religious or just tied to New Testament studies, but is the ability to write in somebody else's name. He actually then goes through in that book Galen does in the book I was just mentioning to you. The book is called On My Own Books, and he talks about people sending him things all the time that have his name on them that he didn't write, hmm. and then other and then and then other things that he did write that they written things into, et cetera. So, so the question then, so as applied to the Bible, then what is, uh, why does that matter? Well, a couple of things. So, and this gets to the kind of the inerrancy and infallibility thing, and then I'll move into, to, to pseudepigraphy. But, um, I, I think for many people in, in some, in some meaningful sense, God is the author of the Bible. Um, you know, so you, you, you hear that, 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 that phrase, that's a tricky, it's a very simple, but very tricky statement, Right. Yeah. Um, 
in, in the sense of what what do you mean by author? But but I I would even push it further than that, and say, what do you mean by Bible? <laughs> right, because it, it 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 it's it's not a self evident object, and yeah. and so when when people say that, I don't think they mean Thomas Jefferson's Bible, right? Yeah. Or I don't think I don't think they mean the King James version, although some might. I don't think they mean Codex Sinaiticus or P forty six, the early collection of Paul's letters. It it, it it it's some sort of concept, right? And and so when you say the Bible is inerrant or the Bible is infallible or God is the author of the Bible, the problem is you really have to kind of pin down what you're talking about with the Bible and what the object of that is. Because in, in, in reality, those theories and that claim, it's a claim about a theory about an object that doesn't exist. If that, <laughs> if, if, if yeah. I mean, I mean, are you, I mean, kind of with me, like, so yeah, yeah, you're, ma- yeah. You're, ma- you're making a claim, right? That there's this thing that happened about an object and you can't go find this elusive Bible that is the, that is in that claim. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, which one is it? I mean, is it the Greek version that Paul was using in Galatia without his letters? It's, you know, which, which version, you know, is it? Um, so, so when you talk about pseudepigraphy, you kind of have to start at that kind of macro theological level, at least in church conversations. Yeah. Because if people are intimately tied to God as kind of a micromanager of the text of this Bible thing that you can clearly define, then, then talking about whether or not the people who say they're the author of a book that they really were or weren't gets dicey. Hmm. But if you can be honest about the fact that we really don't have a Bible that we can say God inspired that one or that one's infallible or God is the author of that one, but, but really just a nebulous concept. It, it kind of gives you room to start thinking about authorship and how the books actually came to be. Hmm. And, and I would even say that um, textual criticism, which it, 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 its goal sometimes is to get back um, what, well, when I was first taught textual criticism, actually back in my days at Oklahoma Christian, it was presented as we're going to get back to the originals, right? Yeah. The actual, actual originals. Um, scholars don't think that's the case anymore. They, they sort of think that's, um, I don't want to say a fool's errand, but they've replaced originals with earliest recoverable. Right. Uh, and so, you know, for example, like, I mean, Paul's letters don't have dates on them. Right. Right. That's odd. I mean, and so are we actually dealing with kind of an edited corpus, even as we have it, right? Like somebody went through and bought, put them together and trimmed off some pieces. And, and so what are you actually, you know, kind of reading in terms of all of that? So in terms of thinking about pseudepigraphy and the question of are, it, it, and, am, am I good or do I need to slow down or anything? Or are we, are we good? Like, I, I don't know if I'm just rattling along or. Well, it, I'll, I'll jump in real quick because it's. Uh, this is fascinating, so we could probably do this with none of us saying anything, but I think one of the, one of the problems is that what you described is very, um, for these two groups of people, basically for non-academics, right? For people Mm -hmm. who grew up churched and believing Mm -hmm. Yep. the way that you got the Bible then 
was kind of what you're talking about. It was handed to you. It was complete. We gave it a name with a capital B. Right. Here's the bot. Here it is. And even for non-believers in non-academia, right, who have even less reason to care right. about what is this thing, mm-hmm. kind of the intuitive understanding that many of my friends who are not believers came to is almost the same thing that a church person believes about the Bible. Right. We, this thing was handed to us as one work. Mm-hmm. And, and so then we work backwards and, and we kind of make it up. Right. So I, I think there's a huge disconnect between, you know, we're studying the Bible as Christians. We're not studying the study of the Bible. Right. 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 And so this gulf between what academics, you know, is it's not threatening in that world. Right. That's this huge paradigm shift for a, like a Sunday school kid to, to right. be like, wait, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said five things that, that I would like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it, it it is sort of the uber question, and, and in some ways I tie it to the larger question of what is God doing in the world? And and there's another question, what is God doing with the book called the Bible? Right. Mm. And, and, and what is God's relationship with both of those entities? And, and those are complicated questions, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, God's involvement in your own personal life faces problems when you have illness or sickness or tragedy. Um, it faces problems when you think about the Holocaust, right? And these mm-hmm. big questions. And and so how you imagine God's relationship with the world and God's relationship with the book we call the Bible, in my opinion, should reflect what we actually know, not not what we want to be true. Yeah. And 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 so we we know a lot about, for lack of a better phrase, what God has allowed with the Bible, right? And so the fact that in the 20th century, scholars concluded that, you know, the final verses of the Gospel of Mark probably weren't in the earliest manuscripts, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's fine. Okay, so it's a little note in the Bible, and actually there are multiple endings at the end of Mark. But it raises the larger question, like, well, how did it get in there? And why was it allowed to persist for hundreds of years if God is micromanaging a text? Yeah. And, 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 and so... That actual evidentiary base needs to inform whatever doctrine you have of inspiration or infallibility, because it may be the case that unlike the way I write a book or the way we work with a book at a press, we're literally, we control everything down to commas and periods and page breaks and indices, and we micromanage the whole thing. We want it to be perfect. There are occasionally errors slip through. That just happens with books. But it seems that God's relationship with the book we call the Bible is a little different, which allows to come full circle to the, to the question that Steve asked me originally, and that is about the question of, of pseudepigraphy. And, and so the basic question is, are there, are there books, well, let's just say the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament is kind of a different thing in some ways, though there are similar issues there. But are, are there books, letters, etc., that are falsely inscribed in, in the New Testament? That is, they're attributed to some figure but it's pretty clear for a variety of reasons that this or that book is not from that person. Before I answer that question, another caveat. Um, there is no doubt that early Christians, broadly defined, were engaged in the writing of pseudepigraphic texts. 
There's that. That's not a mm. question. So, for, I mean, for example, even in Second Thessalonians chapter two, there's a reference about a random letter as though from us, which is this kind of very ambiguous, which has created all kinds of speculation through the centuries. Was somebody involved in a in a forgery at that early date? saying, hey, this is Paul's or something along the lines like that. But apart from that obscure reference, there's no question somebody wrote 3 Corinthians. It's a real text you can go read, <laughs> right? Um, somebody decided that Paul and Seneca, the great philosopher, <laughs> should, have cor- should have correspondence. Really? And they, made up, and they made up a whole body of literature that got taken as genuine. In, in a lot of circles for a long period of time where Paul and Seneca are writing back and Seneca's praising Paul and how wonderful he is. And they're doing all this in Latin, of course, because that makes mm-hmm. sense, I guess. No, <laughs> but, but, um, or, 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 I mean, or even better than that is the, the correspondence between Jesus himself and King Abgar, which is a king from the East that is quoted in Eusebius as genuine. Really? So, so yes, yeah, so you're talking about the fourth century, this great church, you know, historian. Everyone reads Eusebius. He has, and we have them. I mean, because he quotes them, and and so the the question, and, and that's just the beginning of that. And so there are there are books now that have recently been published. Um, Oxford did one. Erdman's has done two with New Testament apocrypha, where you can go and read all of these all of these texts. And so um, no one, to my knowledge, in the scholarly community considers third Corinthians to be a genuine letter of yeah. Paul, right? But it's there. And some people in the ancient church did same thing with Paul and Seneca or Jesus and Abgar. Um, I don't know of any real scholar that thinks Jesus and Abgar were actually pen pals. Um, <laughs> but, but Eusebius apparently did. And, and so that's, you know, and, and, and so I, I say that to say that the early Christians were engaged in, in broadly writing texts in the names of other people. And whether they intended those texts to dupe people or not, they did. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to ask you about that aspect of this stuff. Yep. I, I, I've been, over the past few years, I've been really trying to dig more into the like the historical and the cultural context of things in, in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it informs lots of different ways of looking at things and things you never realized. Mm-hmm. Is... This writing of pseudepigraphic texts, was it, do we know from, from history of the culture at the time, is it, was it just like an accepted thing, like no big deal? Or was it, was it like we would yeah. think of it now, like I'm plagiarizing in my, my paper for my class or something? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not exactly plagiarism, and, and, and that's a really good question. Um, the answer is yes and no. Um, and it, it, it's often cited in literature that no one in the ancient world cared, hmm. right? That authorship is a modern construction. And there's a degree of truth of that. But there's a lot of counter evidence, um, like the, the example I just gave about Galen, that there are some people who did care. Galen cared if someone started writing in his name. Yeah. Because that's, like, that's not how this is supposed to work. And Galen himself, for example, was very, very concerned that there were people who were making up books in the name of Hippocrates, the great physician of the past. Mm. And he went about to disprove them as, as pseudepigraphic texts and not Hippocratic and went and spent a lot of his life proving that. And so it is clear that some people were very concerned. 
depending upon how you understand 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, the letter as from us, whatever that's referring to, it seems that, that, that Paul in 2 Thessalonians, as the text comes to us, is concerned that maybe there's literature in his name that's not his. Mm. Now, with that, with that said, there seems in some philosophical schools to have been a little more give of being able to write in the name of a deceased founder or something. Mm. That's sort of what would so-and-so have said in such a situation. The, the problem with thinking about those texts and the question of deception, which I think is what you're kind of getting at, yeah. Steve, a, a little bit, is that even if you compose a text and it is glaringly transparent to you and maybe the immediate people around you that this is not real, right? This is not actually from so-and-so. It doesn't take long for text to take on a life of their own. And, and apart from the intent of the producer, they become objects of deception because somebody mm. else do, doesn't figure it out at that yep. second step or third step. And, and so even if, even if, you know, a buddy and I, you know, sat around and we're like, huh, what would Epicurus have said about this? And we know he didn't write this. You pass it down a couple of generations and, oh, look what Epicurus wrote, you know, and, 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 and the memory gets lost. Now, whether or not people would have been upset about it may or may not have, may or may not have, you know, kind of depended on whether they liked the interpretation of Epicurus. <laughs> um, and, and that's an important point, too, is that in the ancient world, challenging the authenticity of a document was a practice first really honed in law courts, right, for wills. Uh, just, just like, right. I mean, so like if you could prove money, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you, if you could prove so-and-so didn't actually want this will, right. And so you learn a set of skills in school that allowed you to enter into a law court setting and challenge a will. You could use those same skills. Um, if you wanted to say so-and-so didn't write this or that. So focus in on the new Testament. Um, and, and let me, let me give two concrete examples of the sort of lowest hanging fruit in terms of the pseudepigraphy question. Um, the first is second Peter. Um, and, um, second Peter is, as, as I've told students for years and, and I, I still adjunct and, and, and teach, um, actually taught today, um, a local university as an adjunct. Um, I, I tell students second Peter is probably the luckiest book in the new Testament to have survived. Um, <laughs> b- because second Peter first appears kind of out of nowhere in the late middle to late second century. Hmm. which is, of course, years. I mean, you're talking, I mean, long, long time after the purported death uh, of Peter in the middle of the first century. And the first mentions of it raise questions about where did it come from, who's hmm. using it. Um, and in other words, like it, it, it sort of pops its literary head into the conscience of historians under a cloud of suspicion, even among the ancients. And, and that continues in the second, the third, and into the fourth century. There are people who don't think it's from Peter. There's really good reason to think that. And so um, I, I used to teach first and second year Greek, and one of the capstone texts we would read is Second Peter. And my students started to refer to it as Satan, the text itself. I mean, it is, it is rhetorically rich, very complicated. It's actually good Greek. Yeah. which most of the New Testament is not, but it, it, 
It's at this entirely different register, even of first Peter, right? A- apart from the fact of who Peter actually was, which there's a couple of moves of Peter is known from the gospels to literary Peter of first Peter, which is a pretty big educational jump to second Peter, which is on a whole nother mm-hmm. plane. And, yeah. and so, um, for me, you know, so for example, at, at the press, you know, when we think about different authors of different books and different commentary series, kind of figuring out where an author stands on the authenticity of second Peter is a sort of, um, shibboleth. Um, if huh. they think Pete, if they think Peter wrote Second Peter, then the questions of pseudepigraphy, for whatever reason, for faith, institutional commitment, whatever, are pretty much off the table in terms of pseudepigraphy in the New Testament. Because, yeah. you know, even, even conservative scholars are hard-pressed to, to say, yeah, I, I think Peter of the Gospels, follower of Jesus, disciple, was literarily responsible for the product of Second Peter. And so, and again, I mean, it's, it's a variety of things. It's the fact that it appears out of nowhere years after the purported author dies. The language is on a totally different register. The rhetoric is on a totally different register. The worldview, I mean, in terms of the way it conceptualizes the universe, it's just, it's like this alien thing. Unfortunately, when English translations occur, there's a leveling and so every translation has like a target level. The NIV, I think, is like seventh grade or something like that. Seventh or right. eighth grade is like the target. So all of the difficulty of making sense of Second Peter in Greek is completely obliterated for your English reader. So someone listening to this may go, well, I have no problem reading Second Peter. I just flip it right. You know, well, that's, that's because scholars took it, you know, and, and made it so it, look, it seems easy. But um, the Greek text itself is very complicated. Another example is the book of Revelation. Um, itself. And actually one of the most detailed examples we have of an ancient author going after the authenticity of a text is the book of Revelation by Dionysius of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Of Alexandria. He goes word by word and, anal- and, and, and breaks apart that the person who wrote the apocalypse could not have been the person that wrote the gospel. Hmm. which is how tra- traditionally in church they were linked. Now, he did all of that for a reason. It wasn't just he just wanted to sit around and just have an academic exercise and wonder who wrote Revelation. He didn't like the book. He didn't like the eschatology. <laughs> he didn't like the eschatology in the book. He didn't like the violence in the book. And so he, he thought if he could use his education and sort of put a, you know, a break between those two, that whoever the John was of Revelation could just go away. And, and again... He seems to have been successful. I mean, for at least a hundred plus years in segments of the church of kind of getting revelation off the table. Um, now, ultimately, as we know, as, as the canon got solidified and formed in Bibles today, it made it in. But, but th- those are two of the kind of, whenever I have conversations with scholars and kind of want to figure out where they are on the question of pseudepigraphy, or when I teach students, those are the two examples I always start with before you move to more complicated sort of things. And so in terms of New Testament um, pseudepigraphy, those are the two lowest hanging fruits. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll punt it back to you to, to follow up, push, or ask me to say something more. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> I'm just loving, I'm, lo- I'm loving the, the thought process of it all. Yeah. I, th- um, I think maybe I'm still interested in that idea of 
what biblical academics have accepted and why it's so different from what, uh, you know, a civilian, maybe even minister is going to know or or be aware of because we have ministry training, right? Right. And and then there's uh, academics. And I think that even current culture aside, there's some skeptical feelings about like, what are they doing in those ivory towers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you know, you know what I mean? So that, so I think that there's a, I think that one question that people that would help people is why, why is this study important and what does it bring to the church? Mm-hmm. And, or maybe, you know, why, why is that bridge there? You know, what, why the disconnect? Yeah, um, there's a number of ways to answer that, and um, and 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 I'll, and I'll say it in this way: um, a religious person, without doubt, is a dangerous person. Oh, it's good. It's true. Yeah. It just just in general. Mm. The question you're you're posing, Nathan, which is a good one, is why why would Joe or Jeanette Christian care? Right. Why would they care about any of this? Yeah. Let me rephrase it a little bit. Let me rephrase the question. Um, imagine, imagine a boy or girl raised 50 miles down the Nile today who, let's say, has some training, you know, learns to read the Quran, and then they head to Cairo, university scholarship or whatever, and the question becomes, what what would we want or expect their training about Islam and the Quran to be in Cairo versus what maybe they learned in their village, you know, down the Nile? On the one hand, the university could teach them Orthodox Islam, um, which today, as it's expressed, is that the Quran itself has never been changed, that that, that if you buy the Quran, what you're actually reading are the actual exact words that were delivered to the prophet Muhammad. And, and I don't want to get into all the details of this because this gets kind of dicey. Um, or would you want them to know that no, the history of the Quran is a little more complicated than maybe you learned in the village. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and let's talk a little bit about variants, you know, things that are a little different in different versions of the Quran. Again, that very much goes against Orthodox Islam. For me, history creates a, a window to understand the human experience and God's interaction with the human experience in new and better ways. It facilitates doubt, which creates room for faith that certainty doesn't. Mm. And, and part, of, part of the payoff for me and I'll just speak personally, of academic study of the Bible in its various languages and iterations, etc., is that the Bible ceased to be the object of my faith. Yeah. Which, if I'm if I'm frank, you know, raised in a little church in western Oklahoma next to a weed field, transitioning then to, to Oklahoma Christian and other institutions, my belief structure really was oriented in a book. And, and, and so understanding the history of that book allowed me 
to remove it as an idol and discover God. It's so inter- it's so interesting because as people who came out of a Protestant and then whatever else faith, we had already done that to the church. Mm-hmm. So yep. we are very used to the to understanding the history of the church, mm-hmm. which has you know if you're talking about God micromanaging events, has a lot of mistakes in it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. That you right. would say. You know, you either have to challenge what you think God is doing, yeah. uh, or you, you have to re- you have to face that those mistakes or those problems or those um, bl- those black parts of history in the church. Right, right. But as Protestants, we're very we don't think of the church as holy, right, uh, or handed down to us right uh, by God, and so we're mm-hmm. used to being able to look at that, and it's not threatening at all because I'm not standing on that pillar, right. Right, and I think you're exactly right that so many of us uh, are standing on this pillar of a specific way of thinking about the Bible mm-hmm. that it's kind of an unapproachable. Um, well, it it, and I want to be careful the way I use this word, but um, in the same way that there are mythical theories that exist in the world about the Quran, there are very popular mythical theories about the Bible. Right, yeah. um, and and so. What I would say is that, and this is the second point of, of the analogy I was using earlier, of the, of, the, of the image, is that part of being a good global neighbor is being willing to ask the hard questions about your own religion and your own religious texts and dealing with the gray that results as a way of engaging conversation with those in another tradition. It's sort of the, if you can't, if you can't see what's in your own eye, you're, you're going to have difficulty doing that. And so for right. me, honest academic study of sacred texts is an open door for humility and conversation across religious traditions and mutual understanding and, and ultimately faith. In, in terms of your other question about, okay, so what, what, what do academics think? Let's just take the letters of Paul. Okay. So if, if, if I go to the Society of Biblical Literature meeting, the national meeting, and I present an Apolline Epistles section, which I've done in the past, um, they are not going to grant you, just off the bat, that all of the letters that have Paul's name on them are from Paul. That, that, that's not a starting point. Half the people in the room, or more, it's hard to know the exact numbers, they're not going to accept First and Second Timothy and Titus as being from Paul. Um, the pastorals, they're not going to accept Ephesians as being from Paul. Colossians itself is kind of suspect for a lot of people, though there's, there's you know, arguments that happen around that. The letters that they, and Second Thessalonians actually is another letter that ends up in the mix. And so of the 13, you have six that are disputed, that are not just fair game for you as a scholar to stand up and just start citing, as Paul says in Ephesians or Paul says in 1 Timothy or, or 1 Timothy, that's not going to be granted to you. It, if, if you. If you want to cite Romans, fine. 1 Corinthians, fine. Philemon, fine. 1 Thessalonians, fine. But the, those other disputed texts become a little more dicey. Things are more complicated with 2 Corinthians, which, depending upon the scholar you ask, is either 1, 3, 5, or 7 different letters that have all been smashed together. 
Um, but that's that's probably for another uh, podcast <laughs> and, a, and another discussion about how that happened. Um, in terms of the authorship of the other books, so Paul's a huge chunk, right? And, and I also should say historically, Paul was certainly credited with fourteen letters. And so if you go to if you if you pull out an original King James version, the sixteen eleven King James, although not in the text, in the title, it's Paul. Mm-hmm. So, so Hebrews is unquestionably, you know, we all, some of us mm-hmm. learn that as kids and then get to college and someone goes, by the way, Paul's name's actually not in Hebrews. And you're like, oh, what's going on there? But, but, but through most of Christian history, seven times two, seven's an important biblical number, mm-hmm. 14, that's the Pauline corpus, which is 14 of 27. Mm-hmm. Modern scholars grant seven of the original 14, though even conservative scholars now would say, well, Hebrews... It's not Paul. It doesn't say it's by Paul. So why are we arguing about this? It's just somebody put that above it. Um, a pseudepigraphon. That, as I've told people before, they'll say to me, Hebrews is not a pseudepigraphon. And I, and I say to them, I understand what you're saying. If you read it in Greek, you know, I have a Greek Bible in front of you. But in the 1611 King James, it is a pseudepigraphon. Right above Hebrews, it is falsely inscribed. Right. The letter of mm-hmm. Paul to the Hebrews. That's the definition of a pseudepigraphon. Falsely attributed. Right. There's the, there's the author claiming to be someone else, but then there's the understanding, regardless of what the author said of, you know, this came to us from, from so-and-so. And so, yeah, the, 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 the editors of the, of the 16th King James, and they weren't, I mean, they just didn't make this up. This was a tradition they inherited, but it's a pseudepigraphon um, there in, in terms of, of, of other texts. I mean, the book of Revelation, very curious. Who is this John character? How is this John character related to the other Johns, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or the author of the Gospel of John? Not to mention the enigmatic we of John chapter 21 that seems to be different than the rest of the book. But um, <laughs> scholars scholars remain agnostic, confused uh, about who exactly is the author of the Gospels. I mean, and this gets into some really difficult questions about eyewitnesses and proximity to the disciples and where did the titles of the gospels come from? But there, and there is literally endless debate. I mean, just for example, like what is the relationship of the gospel of Matthew to Matthew? And if, if Matthew is a close disciple, but Mark is not, if as most scholars believe though that we're reassessing the synoptic problem constantly, the relationship of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if Matthew's a close disciple, why is he copying Mark? Yeah. Or did somebody decide we need to attribute this to Mark or Matthew um, to kind of give it more authority? And, and, and those are complicated questions about where did the Gospels come from? Who's ultimately you know, responsible for them? That also applies to the book of Acts. I've already mentioned 2 Peter. 1 Peter itself is a bit of a problem, not as much of a problem as 2 Peter, but it's a problem. Um, the relationship of Jude and Second Peter is a real problem. They seem to have a literary relationship, which hmm. mo- most people think means whoever wrote Second Peter in the name of Peter had Jude, hmm. which, which is the, the general consensus. Now, there's different ways of solving that problem. You could say they had something else, and Jude and the author of Second Peter had the same source. That's another way of you know um, of of doing that. But um, but yeah. So the the question of pseudepigraphy is really really live within the 27 books accepted in the Bible, the canonical New Testament, not to mention all the stuff beyond, which I've just mentioned the sort of tip of the iceberg, third Corinthians, Paul and Seneca, you know, that kind of stuff. Hmm. I'm, 
something I, I just thought of um, histories, you know, you're, this is textual criticism, but you also mentioned history mm-hmm. and history is the study where the, the source is further and further away from us mm-hmm. as each year goes on, but it, it's still possible to discover new things mm-hmm. about something mm-hmm. 2000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, because right. of either, a, like you mentioned, a new text that, uh, of mm-hmm. Galen or, or just better, disco- you know, better knowledge of Greek, better, better study. I think there's a, there's this scary thing about s- new things or like, you know, it shouldn't be possible to discover new things, but what, mm-hmm. like what topics are, are new or like what, what things are kind of being discovered this decade that were kind of unknown to, to Christian scholarship? Are, are, are some of these things, you know, are, are they evolving that quickly or are we, is it a, are you in discussion with people from a thousand years ago and from, you know, 500 years ago? Right. Um, I mean, so biblical scholarship or historical scholarship or even Christian scholarship, really, it is a lot of conversations with the deceased, right? And, and it's how those deceased speak into the present and whether that's through material culture that they leave behind or through text and translation. And so scholars are forever. I mean, re, we recently had some, some discoveries of, um, some of origin, for example, which had been lost. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're adding, adding to the library of origin. Um, so there, there's this kind of constant kind of work going on. There's, there's for the longest time, there was all of this excitement about a so-called first century, um, version of the gospel of Mark that turned out to be a total falsehood. Um, but it floated around for about 10 years that there was this mm. mystery thing that was going to be revealed, Mark from the first century. And it turned out that uh, it was just, it was, it was kind of a mess. And I won't go into all of the details of that. Um, of course, you know about the, the forgery of the gospel of Jesus's wife, um, the yeah. so-called gospel of Jesus's wife, right? And so things do pop up and um, some of them are genuine. Um, some of them are forgeries. <laughs> it's not just an ancient practice. It's right. a modern practice as well, so you kind of have to, to vet and, and sort that out. In terms of biblical scholarship writ large, the, the primary shift that I would say, and I don't know if this is the question you, you want, Nathan, but, but in terms of what scholars are doing today is that we are reaching a tipping turning point, which is good, in which biblical scholarship, at least in the Western sense, is no longer being controlled by white male men. And, and, so, and so women and persons of color are approaching the text and they're asking different questions about the text. And the agendas and the questions of, of white men are no longer driving um, the train. And, and that happens in a lot of subtle ways. I mean, so for example, a very simple Lynn Osiak raised a question some years ago, and this is the kind of thing that white men just missed, but it raised the simple question, what would it have been like to have been a slave girl to a non-Christian master and hear in a Christian setting two different commands? Avoid porneia, right, sexual immorality, on the one hand, and on the other hand, obey your master. <laughs> Those two things. Yeah. Right, and and... For reasons you can probably imagine, not a lot of white male scholars went, huh, that's a problem. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and so there's been a diversification of voices 
which has raised new questions yeah. about Christian origins and about the texts. And, you know, and I was just talking to a, to, to, to a bright scholar today who's working on a project about thinking through the ways in which like, um, for example, when Jesus turns over all of the, um, you know, in, in the temple, the, the scene with the whips and the turning the money table over, um, who, who was manning those tables? Were those slaves? And did they get in trouble because mm-hmm. somebody messed up all the money? Right. Which is, is sort of a decentering of the story, right? Yeah. It's, 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 story, it's a triumphant story of Jesus, you know, get rid of the greed, whatever. But are there real world impacts on people at a lower socioeconomic or lower power level in those stories? And so those are some of the questions that scholars are asking. And there's been a big turn of late of thinking about the physical texts of how the gospels were composed, who used them, who read them, how they got brought together, etc. So when you, when it comes to the to looking through, I mean, you sit down to look through the the New Testament as a scholar and mm-hmm. you you identify these texts that are either pseudepigraphic or why well, mm-hmm. whether in like then or now. <laughs> Like you right. mentioned with the KGV, right? Um, and you determine that this this Second Thessalonians, for example, that maybe that's probably not Paul, right? Um, that obviously that opens a, a, a can of worms because mm-hmm. it's and it goes back to kind of Nathan's question of scholarship versus, for lack of a better phrase, blind faith. Like mm-hmm. it's in my Bible; it's supposed to be there. I, I saw a video just recently of a gal like really, really concerned and uh, disheartened that uh, I think it was like Matthew twenty seventeen twenty one I forget the exact, the exact verse, is like verse 21 is not in the Bible because right. it wasn't in the KJV, but the, the you know newer text right. and all this stuff. And she like was like shaking her faith. Right. And right. so when, but then you get to talking about entire books. Right. And it becomes less of a, to a lot of people, it becomes less of a scholarship issue and more of a, just a, a faith issue. So how do we, how do we, yeah. how do you approach that? Yeah. I mean, no, it, the, I mean, it's easy question, right? <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 the fact that the fact that an adult who has invested enormous time and resources to attend church and read a Bible across their life, right, can discover, um, I used to play this game with my students um, called Find That Verse, and, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I show all these verses, and there are a lot of them that just don't exist in modern translations because they've been decided, yeah. you know, it's, it's been decided on very good grounds that they should not be, you know, in the text, um, not just the big chunks like the woman caught in adultery, you know, adultery yeah. in Roman, in John 8. Or, or Mark 16, but there's all the little verses here and there in different places. And so the fact that they don't know that when it's clearly printed, I mean, even if you go to Bible Gateway online or your phone app, there'll be a little star or an asterisk or something that mm-hmm. will tell you, hey, listen, there's a verse missing here and the earliest manuscripts don't have. Mm-hmm. To me, and again, using my analogy about what does it mean to be a good neighbor, that that if Christians don't understand the basics of how the book came to be and, and sort of the reality of that, how can you expect someone else from another tradition, maybe with fewer educational opportunities, 
um, fewer, little, you know, less access to information. How can you expect them? And so, first of all, I think it's not neighborly to kind of be ignorant like that. I mean, second, I think it is a failure of church leaderships and, and church educational programs that kids show up at college, you know, a Christian college. So these are, I mean, you know, obviously parents are invested and, and they just don't know really, really basic things. And, and, and that's easily remedied. For me, if they can get past that first hurdle of, okay, we're removing Mark, you know, 16, nine through the end of the, of the thing, there is a question of, do you just remove it? Do you leave it? Do you put a, you know, do you put a little squiggly line around it? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you do with it? Then moving to say, you know, okay, well maybe this book, not, not by Paul, that creates an opportunity for a broader discussion about what is the canon, who decides what's in and out, which I'm going to be honest here again, that itself can be pretty unsettling. Um, because ultimately publishers publish Bibles and they publish Bibles so people will buy them yeah. um, and to, to make money. I mean, like the, the whole controversy, you, the two of you may recall, over the TNIV, which no longer exists. You can't right. get the TNIV, right? What is the TNIV? Be, Today's it, NIV or something. Yeah. It was an attempt oh. to revise the NIV that caught the ire of, of some very, very powerful people in the evangelical world uh, for issues of gender-inclusive language. And oh, okay. That's ringing a bell. The, the, the committee, and this is what's fascinating, right? The committee, which worked for the publisher, formally repented. Really? They pulled, yeah, they pulled the TNIV. To my knowledge, you cannot go and purchase a TNIV today. I mean, you may better get an old used copy. Huh. And, they, and they went back and redid the NIV without the TNIV problems. But, and so now the new NIV is actually the new NIV. And if you refer to the old NIV, that's the NIV of 1977. Um, when the new Testament was done, but, but there is a larger question of who's actually in charge of your Bible and who, and and who's making the decisions to separate texts that are lost. Who decides just to cut that verse and put it in a note or who decides just to leave second Thessalonians. And frankly, this is a pretty serious problem for Protestants because we don't have a a ready answer. (laughs) Um, uh, right. I was, and, about, and, I was about to say, oh, for the days when we were just one giant church, right? <laughs> when the Catholic Church was in charge, yeah. Right. I mean, there there is a simplicity and a beauty, you know, in that. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church decides, and these are the books. The Protestant yeah. model of tying it to apostles and authority and trying to distance it from the church, things do get a little bit more tenuous. Now, you can be creative and find meaning. In these pseudepigraphic texts, you can think about how other people have used them across time and space and find meaning in them that way. Now, whether or not, you know, like Second Thessalonians, I love, you know, I personally like the fact that it's disputed because you, Second Thessalonians chapter two is one of the weirdest <laughs> chapters in the entire Bible. And, <laughs> and, it, and it actually credits God theologically with causing people to believe lies. Yeah, that. Yeah. And, and so, stuff. yeah. And so, you know, and, and the pastorals say some really, really worse than disheartening, really bad things about women and, yeah. and things that I don't like and I don't agree with and are not experiences of my life or my educational trajectory. And so hanging the Deuteropauline label on those texts is good for me. Now for other people you know, who really like, you know, elder lists or, you know, whatever, 
it's maybe a little more problematic, but not for me. And so in general, I would say churches and institutions of higher education that are financed by churches and church people need to do a better job of being honest and, 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 and communicating clearly about what's going on here. It should not be the case that an 18, 19 year old rolls into a Christian college and learns some of this stuff for the first time. I mean, all of the people that I've ever talked to who, who talk about faith development and trajectories of, of spiritual growth and all that kind of stuff, not my area of expertise. I don't claim any expertise here, but they've all said that there should be a transition. Those that I've talked to at like ages 16, 17 and 18, when one is still at home, so to speak, mm-hmm. where we're, we're in some kind of context, there starts to be uh, a maturation, a presentation of, 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 of more complicated materials. Um, it makes so much sense because, because you're, otherwise it's like everything that these authority figures taught me is being challenged instead of these people who lived it out that I saw also, you know, grapple with this. So maybe there's room for me to grapple with that as well. That's such right. a good, such a good point. Yeah. Yeah, but of course, that requires the the adult in the situation to also <laughs> actually want to grapple with those things. Yeah, right. And that's Which is and often not the case. <laughs> that's and 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 that's part of the problem. And that's you know really 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 part of the problem. I mean, I remember asking um, Steve back back at um, at OC days. We you know for some reason we I don't remember what class I was even in, but we were it was the Battle of Jericho. Mm. And, and I remember, and I remember raising my hand and, and I said, this is genocide. <laughs> and yes. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and the, you know, the professor, I'll leave the name out was like, what? I said, this is genocide. I mean, they're, they're killing everything. I mean, like you read, yeah. I mean, you read these stories and I said, you know, what's worse is I acted this out at VBS eight years ago <laughs> as a 10 year old. <laughs> right. I walked around the Battle of Jericho with these fake bricks in the auditorium yeah. and everybody died. And why are we doing this? You know, but it, 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 if people in churches don't stop and ask these questions, then you end up with young adults who with just a small amount of information, it just tailspins. When I, re- I even remember also in a class at OC with Kurt Nickham, actually. Uh-huh. L- love the guy. Yeah, I, mean, I love him too. He, it was my Romans class and yep. he, somebody asked a really like a question like that. I forget the exact question. It was a really hard question. And he's like, can uh, somebody go grab the doors? <laughs> Shut the doors, <Yeah>. please. <laughs> and he's like, okay, here's, here's the real talk, you know? Yeah. And the, the yeah. fact that that is even at a university that's supposed to be teaching you about the Bible, the fact that some of that stuff is the, the questions are, are seen as not permissible to ask. Right. Or answer. That causes a, a lot, or answer, that it causes a lot of issues. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I, I can, I can go on and on and on about why I'm now working for a publisher and no longer working for a Christian university along these yeah, lines, but I can that would be an entire, that would be an entire <laughs> podcast. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if you don't, if you don't create the open space for the conversation and people who are in charge don't know, then the, the young people are not going to know. Yeah. 
It's definitely back to that space between faith as a holding tight to certainty mm-hmm. or faith as the letting go and, uh, you know, the you know, with doubt, with room for grief and doubt and, you know, fear and uncertainty. I mean, living in the gray is the space of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I love what you mentioned earlier about how this is a lot, doing this research and this this learning and study has allowed you to, I think you said, remove the Bible as your focus of faith or focus it was of worship. An idol. It, it, it was an idol. Yeah, oh yeah, I totally with right there with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it, was, it, was, it was a totem, an idol, you name it. Yep, um, but allowing you to get to that point where, and that's, that's kind of, I'm, I love what you, how you said that because that's really what I'm feeling. That's, I think that why I'm kind of going down this rabbit hole myself in a lot of ways. And I kind of have been for a while mm-hmm, mm-hmm. off and on, but just not like afraid to say anything. Like right. I, like I read a couple books by Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman. Yeah. I'm like, can I ask anybody about these things? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm not allowed. <laughs> this is scary stuff, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, um, Bart's books and the popularity of those books have been an entree for so many people to ask just basic questions. And, um, I mean, Bart himself is a former fundamentalist I mean, this is his own, you know, account and, and, and he does a good job of raising a lot of the issues. The, the fact that some of the basic stuff that he raises, which frankly, again, is sort of New Testament or Bible 101 at most state school university introduction to the Bible courses mm-hmm. and it's so shocking it says something about the church educational systems and even the Christian college educational systems. Um, like, why do you not know this? Well, no yeah. one told me. And so here's this person who's like, let me just tell you the truth, you know? And, and again, history, you don't have to be afraid of history. I, I mean, my, for me, faith and the world of faith should be shaped by things we know. Um, not by the world we hope to be true. Mm, I like that. Fantasy, fantasy is the world of children. Reality is the world of adults. It's messy, and it's not mm. the way. You know, whatever God is doing with the book we call the Bible is not how I would write a book, or publish one, frankly. So do you do you just toss the whole thing out then? No, it's just that it, it's just it's just a moment. It's just a moment of of humility that. In the same way, I wouldn't allow this, that, or the other in the world, but the tear, you sort of step back. Yeah. You know, you- and, and, and it, it's kind of, you know, it can be kind of a Job moment when, when, when God, when God in the story of Job is presented in the story of Job goes at Job and says, you know, let's talk about Leviathan. Yeah. What do you got? And then, you know, there's no question about is Leviathan real? Like in the mythical world, right? Of that story, like Leviathan's real, behemoth is real. And God's mm-hmm. like, you want to, you want to explain all this? And Job's like, I got nothing for you here. And so, you know, that's what I mean by the humility of it and and the taking down of certainty. So for me, the biblical text, um, when used in Christian community is one of the primary dialogue partners of, of, of the church as it orients itself and thinks about itself. I rarely consider it the final word. Um, Mm. it's an important part of the dialogue, but the Bible says enough different things and can be interpreted enough different ways and has enough historical problems that you have to use it wisely and not as a weapon of mass destruction. Yeah, which it quite literally has been used as. Literally. Unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. 
But what you said earlier, I feel like it's less threatening to think about, like even thinking about the Quran, I was like, man, this is touchy. But yeah. you, you just, you, you know, said, you know, talking about things that, how did you not know this? Or like this, this little thing crumbles this whole thing. And it reminds me of talking to Chinese students or to, um, or going to a culture that has a really locked down self story about its country or its leader. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, or or right. even its news, right? And so then there's mm-hmm. from the outside, it's like, why aren't you grappling with this? And we have that in America, you know, the stories we we have that to some extent. But at the root of that is insecurity. Like mm-hmm. if you know the truth, then you will uh maybe not be as devoted to this country. Or right. and at the root of it, you know, it's fear at, at, when you boil it down, mm-hmm. and I, I think that holding on it it feels like you're protecting yourself from something, but it's evidence that you're afraid to look at this. And if you're afraid to look at this, then why are you? Why is it your pillar? You know, why why mm-hmm. is it your final word on things? Um, right. When really at the heart of it is, I would rather not know these things or or even you know even if you disagree with them or you want to find your own scholarship or whatever it is i think there's even the reluctance to like even open that door like i like i joke and i joked earlier uh like (laughs) genetic testing like do you know what maybe some people shouldn't open that door like i you know don't even want to go down that road right but when it's the bible bigger things are at stake yeah, and that's it, it. Actually, kind of come full circle. I mean, genetic testing is an interesting thing because you may find out through a genetic test that a parent is not who you thought they were, but you may may also through that same genetic test find a whole bunch of actual family members that explains a lot of things that are physically wrong with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, and the, and there's a difference between the truth and the story that you tell yourself. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. But it doesn't. Yeah. Like discovering it doesn't change the truth. Right. Discovering, you know, looking, this isn't quantum physics. Looking at it does not change the answer. It doesn't make it disappear. Right. And, 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 and ultimately, be- believing a story, if the story is not actually real, it doesn't ultimately help you. When, when Steve and I were at Oklahoma Christian together, if he would have asked me, I would have told him to the point of like fighting that I was 116th Native American. <laughs> because it be, because of a family story. Now, hey, so I am Nathan, too. You, so I don't know if I want to hear this. So, I think so, so Nathan, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so Nathan. I mean, you don't you don't know, but I'm I I'm a six foot four guy that looks like he's dropped straight out, you know, straight out of like Sweden or oh, Norway or something. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, I'm I'm like blonde, sandy blonde hair, and so I finally took the test. And do you know what my percentage of Native American is? What? None. Zero. None. <laughs> None. And, and so th- this is actually maybe a good place to kind of wrap our conversation. But um, when I was teaching at Abilene Christian, we had a, we had a class of 50 students and we got, we got permission from the provost. Uh, we were talking about family stories versus the reality of family, the stories mm-hmm. we tell ourselves. And we ask all 50 students, you know, ask your parents, whatever, what's the family story? And it, it was something like 48 or 49, I, I forget which one it was, of the students in that class believed they were native american <laughs> you usually usually at the level of great right or great great or something like that yeah yeah and and native they, american princess right 
Exactly. Or, <laughs> there, there, or there was some noble whatever with Grandpa. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's all this kind of weird, you know, legend. Do you know how many of those kids were Native American when the test came back? One. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the kicker. Do you know who that one kid was? Yeah. That kid was from Mexico. And it totally destroyed his family's narrative. No. That he was pure right. Spanish blood oh. from Spain in Mexico, never touched by indigenous populations, when in fact he was half Native American. Wow. Everybody's stories was blown out. And, and so the thing is, is that and, and as applied to biblical studies, um, yeah, that's scary. But basically we all were living a lie. <laughs> And, and, and not to be cliche that the truth will set you free, but knowing things can, in, you know, can allow you to live in truth and mm-hmm. can allow you, in my case, to return it back, to actually find faith. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I, I feel like I could, we need some, a few more episodes with you, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm happy to help. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, the function of fear in religion and belief, I think, is something I want to talk about. Or I want to look into this more because it's the, a lot of mm-hmm. what we're talking about comes down to fear. Right. Fear. Fear to. I'm afraid to look at what's true because I might know more than I want to know, and it's like there's this feeling that I know that's out there, and so we it, we go to extremes to pre-discredit the sources before we even look into them. Mm-hmm. Like, well, they, they just, they just hate God. So they want to pretend that the right. Bible is all fake and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure you've received your help. I have plenty of, of that. So, um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I could talk for a long time about this stuff, but I, I thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. I, we, we kind of branched all around from starting with pseudepigraphic texts, but we, we, we did. Um, I think this is all really good stuff. Do you, I was wondering if you had a couple uh, recommendations possibly for books that people might be able to like dig into this a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if, if you go on Amazon um, and you search New Testament Apocrypha or New Testament Pseudepigrapha, as I, as I mentioned, Oxford um, has produced some books where you just an English translation where you can easily read this stuff. And, and Erdman's the publishing house where I published um, has produced two volumes of New Testament um, Apocrypha, Studepigrapha. Um, these are, of course, books outside of the canon. Um, right. But it, but if you want a sense of kind of what's there, or you want, or you, you know, you yourself, you want to read what did whoever church father, what did they think Seneca and Paul talked about? It's right there, right. you know, or or Jesus and King Abgar. And so, um, I mean, again, and it's not a question of whether Christians were doing this; they were. Um, it, the, the the question, which is a faith question tied to the authorship question, tied to the inspiration question, is whether those there are pseudepigraphic texts in the New Testament. And so most biblical scholars say yes. Um, I think they're right. Certainly in the case of Second Peter, um, things get more dicey as you move further away from there in terms of who yeah. agrees or disagrees. Are there any good sources for people to look into that kind of stuff, like t- New Testament-related things? Yeah, I mean, I was trying was to think just through... Like- too broad. <laughs> are the words too I, I, long? I, I, are, are there ones sources with short words? No, 
No, I, I mean, I mean, you know, if if I mean, most most good New Testament introductions talk about pseudepigraphy in some capacity because you 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 really have to. Um, so th- th- there's a there's a really good book, um, actually by Jerry Sumney, who's is a guy from from this art tradition. Um, okay. It's in its third it's in its third edition. It's called the Bible. It's introduction to the entire Bible. Um, it's actually published by Frenemy Press by Fortress Press. But it's a it's a good book and and kind of talks through some of the issues of inspirations at an undergraduate level, and kind of gives you some options as well as talks about pseudepigraphy, hmm. um, and and so it's um it it's the book, it's the book I use when I'm asked to teach, um, freshmen and sophomores at the undergraduate level, usually at religious based institutions, okay. to sort of get get their head around it, it. It's it's written at that level, you know. I mean, it's gotcha. it, it, it's very very accessible. But it's good. Thank cool. you. This is this has been great. I agree with Steve. Uh, love to have you on again sometime. Uh, we could sure. certainly fill an hour of questions. So thanks so much. Sure, yeah. it's, been my, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. See you later. All these Bye, guys. messages I thought you wanted to hear, but it only takes a whisper. Hey, thanks for listening to Following the Fire. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, which includes links to everything we mentioned as well as all the scriptures, head on over to followingthefire.com and just click on this episode. There's also contact information on the website. Let us know what you think about the show and if you have any suggestions for future topics. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It really helps other folks find the show. And as always, thanks to the fabulous Daniel Wheat for the theme song and the music for the episode. You can find more of his stuff on Apple Music and Spotify. See you later.